Welcome to episode 22 of The Nth Dimension, a podcast that is a deep dive into the systemic causes behind social, political, and economic issues of our time. And dare I say, aren't we living through so many issues right now? We're definitely in a new world order since I last did this. We're living through a pandemic. We're living through a real-life version of Contagion. And I come to you not from my usual spot at Talkshoe Studio, but from the four walls of my bedroom. Today's episode, one I'm very excited about, is how COVID-19 has built a case for UBI, that is, universal or unconditional basic income. My guests and I will be talking about how a Pandora's box has been unleashed on us and we're seeing all the gaping holes in our socioeconomic structures. I have back with me in our virtual studio, Nassim, who is a computer developer by day and a UBI aficionado by night. So Nassim, thanks so much for joining me once more. Hey, thanks for having me on. Um, so before we get right to it, tell me, does all of this feel slightly surreal with you? Like, what are your immediate thoughts about the fact that the entire world is going through the same healthcare crisis right now? Yeah, it's crazy. I, I don't think any of us have lived through something like this in, in our generation, certainly. And uh, yeah, it makes you kind of think back to how previous generations actually had to have some level of, of sacrifice that I think that we're not accustomed to. So for some people, it's like, oh my God, I have to stay indoors. But I've seen a lot of memes about like, you realize our grandparents went overseas to fight in the war. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think it's, you're starting to see some similar kind of um, actions of power that, that you wouldn't have seen since basically a wartime of having to, for instance, take over means of production to spin up ventilators and these kinds of things. So it's, you're starting to see some of the uh, rules of society be less um, hard and fast and, and see that there's actually more flexibility in a time of a crisis and that things can actually change quite quickly. You're totally, you're totally on point. And it, it honestly hit me the other day about how, like you said, like this is the first time that our generation is seeing something like this. And like, if I compare it to, you know, wartime, like at least we can, go out and get groceries without the fear of, you know, rifles or bullets astray hitting us, you know? So like we have, we still have access to pretty much everything that we need in terms of food, you know? So like this, 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 this is the better end of a, of a crisis that, you know, some, some of our previous generations have lived through. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So before we dive into the conversation around UBI, which I know you know so much about, and I couldn't have asked for a better person with me today to talk about this. But before we get into it, I just quickly want to set the stage for for what's going on. And we're particularly going to focus on America and Canada, given our geographical location. So America, particularly New York City, has become the epicenter of the crisis. Yesterday alone, 1,800 people died. And as all non-essential businesses shut, have shut, millions of people have lost their jobs. As of six days ago, 10 million people had filed for unemployment insurance. The government released, and I say this in brackets because I'm supposed to be an unbiased journalist, but a laughable bailout package, if I may say so, that will give people $1,200 every month and $4 trillion for corporations. So let's, let's laugh at that, please. 
in, across the border in Canada, all non-essential businesses were shut about three weeks ago. And the number of cases have um, consistently been, been going up. But I should add the caveat that we I'm not exactly sure about the rate of increase at this point. And since March 15, 3.7 million people have filed for employment insurance. And we're looking at the highest unemployment levels that Canada has seen in 70 years. So in response, the government released an emergency aid package that will give people who have lost work due to COVID-19, are in quarantine, or are in a caretaking situation $2,000 a month until October 3rd. So, Nassim, it's it's um we can clearly say that this pandemic has resulted in severe economic vulnerabilities, particularly for those at the very middle or bottom, lower end of the socioeconomic structure. So, what is your take on this response? And would you call these responses knee-jerk reactions? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. I think Canada has put forward, I mean, it, it depends who you're comparing ourselves to, right? Like you said, the Americans are their Senate and Congress are literally on recess right now. They're not even voting on legislation, <laughs> which is insane. But they they just had a primary, so yeah, they, and they're still having yeah people go out and vote. This yeah. is just ridiculous. Um, so at least we're not doing that. Um, and the government has put forward a lot of different programs to try and support people. The, my critique of it is that there are a lot of gaps between these programs. And it seems every time that people come back and say, hey, you, you know, you're not supporting these vulnerable people, then their solution is basically to come back and to try and plug the gaps and just kind of add more benefits. So there's actually a pretty long array of, of things that they're offering um, from the CERB, EI support, you know, boosting the Canada Child Benefit. And recently they announced they want to subsidize wages up to 75% to keep people on payroll, though they haven't legislated it yet. Um, but my critique of all of this is basically why they didn't just choose to make it universal. Uh, so rather than doing all the means testing at the front of this and trying to, there, there's even, if you look on um, the Government of Canada website, and Justin Trudeau tweeted this the other day, it's funny, they have a photo which basically shows when you should apply for your CERB. So it's like if you were born between January, February, March, you should apply on Mondays. Or if you were born, like they're like telling you which day to apply on based on when you were born on and what the best day to apply on, which I don't think anyone's really going to follow that. I think if you're probably just going to be like, I'm going to apply earlier, so I'll get it earlier, or you just won't even see it, right? But the idea that they have all this kind of like bureaucracy around it and that even from my perspective to figure out what all the rules are and the eligibility is quite complex um yeah it just it begs the question why not just make it universal just give everybody the money right now like give the two thousand dollars on a monthly basis that's good and then for those who don't need it if you want to means test it you can do it at the end of the process so we already have a process in place for that which is the tax season Right. So we can just decide how much we want to claw back from people who don't need it. And we can make it progressive. So it's like the more you make, the more they, they claw back. Yeah. And you're right. Like even now, the system, the CERB aid package. So just for people who are listening in from abroad who may not know what CERB is, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the full form is Canadian Emergency Response Benefit. Benefit. Yeah, that's right. Um, So even now, I think they say on the portal, or I saw it. um, Either someone tweeted it, but it's it's very much an honor system because 
people who have applied have um, gone on to re- write reviews. And I think they're asking like very basic questions and it's taking maybe like tops 10 minutes to apply for it. So it is still a very uh, much an honor-based thing that they're doing. And if there's any like fault in your application, then you'll have to basically pay back in your next tax season, which is right. what you're saying. So they could have very well, you know, given it to everyone in one go. Yeah, and- yeah. And then figure it out and then filled in the loopholes next year. Yeah, without making everyone have to basically figure out all of those things, right? And go even go through the eligibility criteria because it can be quite complex. If you look at like mine and my wife's case, for instance, we were working overseas last year. So it's like we made money over $5,000, but not in Canada. But now returning and working in Canada, we're both contractors and my wife is about to finish her contract. So it's coming to a natural conclusion, but it's hard to find a new job or contract given the virus. So it's like you have to then start to wonder, okay, does this fit into the eligibility or or doesn't? And I feel like just kind of the new nature of work is a bit more kind of on the fly. There's a lot of gig workers and a lot of part-time workers, and it's going to be hard for a lot of people to determine whether or not they meet the criteria. And also people who were in the midst of looking for a job. You know, it kind of doesn't cover them. I guess it also doesn't cover students and like people who are graduating. But I think like what you said about from the point of like critiquing from a point of view um, of other in response to other countries, like I think in response to America. Yeah, I think Canada was more swift. Um, Two thousand dollars seems generous compared to 1200 bucks of course keeping the conversion rates in mind but like maybe compared to other countries maybe a response has not been that great but but i think in in comparison to to the states i think where we have done a much uh more we we gave a more cohesive and rapid response but let's move on to sort of what you said about you know if we had a universal if the if the government had come out and said we're we're literally giving everybody two thousand dollars um from the get-go how how that would have made how that would have cut out bureaucracy so can i ask you to lay out a basic premise of what universal or unconditional basic income is for people who may not know sure yeah so i've been listening to a lot of scott Santons lately so i kind of have his pitch down <laughs> Which so there's three Give me the elevator. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> three main qualities of a UBI. So the first is the fact that it needs to be universal or unconditional. So that basically just means it's not means tested. And then the second is that it, it's periodic, ideally on um, uh, some frequent basis, like monthly. So it's not just a one-time payment. And then the third main quality is that it's cash-based. So uh, you could contrast this with like food stamps. Um, where they say you can only use it for these certain things. There's no restrictions on how you can use it, what you can buy with it. Right. And what are some of the advantages um, of having a UBI in place, according to you, or Santon's that is? Sure. Um, So I think you can come at it from a few angles. So I think a lot of people might be familiar with it these days through the Andrew Yang campaign, where he came at it from the perspective of automation. So he's basically saying we're kind of our hands kind of forced regardless, right? Like we're about to lose a good chunk of the jobs over the next 10 and 20 years. He says the five most common jobs are easily automatable in that time span. 
And so it's basically saying like, you can't retrain people and get them into new jobs, high paying jobs that allow them to live decently in that kind of time frame. Like we're way behind the curve. So the only solution really is to give people universal basic income so that they can continue to not be in utter poverty. Um, so that's one angle you can come at it from. Um, and he makes other points as well. I think another point that Scott Santens talks about a lot is about reforming social assistance programs. So even if you didn't have an automation crisis, you could just say, okay, the way we uh, issue welfare or disability payments is really cruel and inhumane. And there's a lot of hoops people have to jump through and it's very punitive. Um, so we could improve those programs. And then I think you can also come at it from a perspective of just how society is structured. If you just think a bit more deeply about what a fair level of redistribution is, you know, how capitalism needs people to spend money for it to work, not to be hoarded at the top, or from the perspective of workers' rights and allowing them to actually have leverage, especially now that unions are on the decline. Um, and, and just more even philosophically about how to motivate people to do good work, whether people are motivated intrinsically or ex extrinsically, like if giving people more money gets them to actually do better things for society. And, and just deeper questions about the purpose of work, like why do we work? Is it for um, you know, sustenance or is it for fulfillment? And then we can also talk about things like shared inheritance, right? Or, or what we should be getting back from our taxpayer investments. Because a lot of the um, research and investment that allows these companies to make a lot of money is funded by the taxpayers. So what's kind of like our stake in all of this, right? What, what do they owe us for, for our investments and for previous generations investments in, in society that made these things possible. Yes, yeah, so, so many great points there. I want to go back to uh, one of the first ones that you made about how, like, going forward, we are now in it. We are already in a technological revolution and going forth, like, where more and more of our jobs are going to be automated. We've known this for a long time coming now. So the nature of work has been in evolution for a while now and but even as we look at what this pandemic has done i think there are so many there's so many things that are coming out about capitalism and i want to say unfettered capitalism because it knows no boundaries of when profit turns into greed into uh the the, the need for power etc so what we are seeing is that a lot of people, especially especially young people, are involved in gig and contract work. I mean, let's just take everyone in this conversation. I um, am a contract worker, freelancer. You are a contract worker, freelancer. And you mentioned your wife is too. So that itself put so many people out of work. Um, when we look at people involved in wage jobs and they people who worked in restaurants are now out of work. So I think we forget, if I'm supposed to look at this from a slightly philosophical existential aspect, I think we forget how how um, fragile and elastic life is. And we've built all these structures thinking that, you know, something like a pandemic or a crisis going forward, like we don't know what kind of environmental havocs we're going to deal with. So there is a lot of vulnerability that we are going to see more and more in this I think this pandemic has sort of like given us everybody like an opportunity a chance to see just how something can slip from underneath you if you don't have 
a social security net. And I just like, I, I imagine how having a UBI in place, how let's say we were living in a society where, you know, everybody had $2,000 coming in every month, regardless, like you don't have to jump through through hoops, as you said, for some people who do when they apply for pensions or disability insurance, etc. Um, so I wonder how that would have curbed some of some stress, anxiety and vulnerability. What do you think? Yeah, so um, I, I think, yeah, even in the best of times, people are, are not doing particularly well. Um, never mind the pandemic, right? So like when we look at something I always want to ask, like any any aspiring politician is what they would do about the last the trends of the last 50 years, essentially. I think our politicians aren't putting forward ideas to match the scale of the problem that we're dealing with right now. So essentially, we've had from World War II to the 1970s, you've had productivity and wages rising more or less in, in lockstep. But now since the 1970s, you have what economists refer to as a great decoupling, right, where wages are stagnant, productivity record high, and, and all the benefits of that productivity are going to the, to the top 1% or 0.1%. So basically, my, my question is, I was like, how do we reverse these trends, right? And knowing that we're on these trends, there's a, there's, um, a yeah, common statistic that's cited that Andrew Yang cited a lot in the campaign where he's saying 40% of Americans can't afford an unexpected $400 bill. And so even in the best of times, people are at that level of precariousness, like economic um, insecurity. Um, so, so I think there's a lot of arguments to say we should already have a UBI so that we're not decimating rural communities and all, all the like. But I think then even in this context, it's like our system, like you said, is so incredibly fragile. Like how are 40% of these people supposed to just pay rent for one month without pay, right? Like to have a society that's living paycheck to paycheck, is it's kind of insane. And I think also the American uh, aid uh, package, you're talking <clears throat> about how a lot of this money is going to benefit corporations. Um, many of these corporations who are very irresponsible with, with the profits that they had, instead of you know setting aside rainy day funds, they were using this money to buy back stock to try and boost bonuses and um, please investors. Um, and when, when just like a few weeks ago, they were like, oh, but where are we going to get the money for Medicare for all? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's like people are expected to have like a three month rainy day fund, but then airlines aren't, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like an airline is just like, we need money now. And the government's like, okay. Here so you it's go. Like, like people often say, it's like, we have, we have socialism, but it's just for the rich. <laughs> yeah. You're so right. Like. I never thought about it from that point of view. We, there are all these mechanisms in place, but for people who already have, they're, they're sleeping on piles of cash. <laughs> but sort of going back to what you said about how on like in the best of times, people are living from paycheck to paycheck. I remember when, you know, when we were in Canada, when the federal election was happening last year, you know, it was like at least the the work I was involved in was trying to get a lot of more young people on board and like consistently, you know, many studies done on this about like the anxieties of the young um, and consistently it came out that young people are worried about the rising cost of living. They're worried about student debt. 
They're worrying about they're worried about housing, unaffordability, and of course, climate crisis. I just I sometimes sit back and think about how we are sat literally in what one would think of like one of the richest countries. Um, Canada is supposedly, you know, the soft power of Canada projects this like moral high ground and, you know, one of the most like liberal free democracies in the world and rightly so. But I can't help but wonder when we are shackling people in by by making them them live in such tight economic structures where where they are living paycheck to paycheck, then like, first of all, where are we giving them the time to to realize their freedom, be creative. And then like, are we actually free if we're working two jobs, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I I don't think we are actually free. I don't think you can really be free in this society unless you're financially independent. Our freedom is kind of inextricably tied to a consistent, um, you know, availability of funds. (laughs) And, and so for instance, if you if you are not financially independent and you are desperate for a job, then you have to basically take whatever job you can get, right? So if you're in that position, the, the quality of these jobs are awful, right? Because when desperate people, they don't have to cater to any of their um, uh, preferences as to what the workplace should be like or the benefits or anything like that, right? So I think increasingly people are just kind of stuck in like a lose-lose situation where you basically like the Republicans and the Democrats are kind of like a good cop, bad cop kind of scheme, <laughs> or it's like both want the same thing out of you, but two approaches of getting it. They kind of just put you back and forth between the two of them. Yeah. And I, and you know, you, you mentioned like the, you mentioned automation, automation and stuff when we started talking and imagine if we did have a UBN place, we, we wouldn't be forcing a lot of people right now to risk their lives and work in um, conditions that are at com- like that are completely risking them right now. And instead, those jobs would be handled by automated machines. Let's say I don't think we'd need like shoppers, for example, right now. If there if there was a security net in place that allowed people to stay at home, which is the best way to see this pandemic through, to stay at home and then everything is being handled by automated robots, you know, and mm. I and I and I don't think that's something that's um, super futuristic and impossible. I mean, we are already seeing that we have these systems in place and and that people don't necessarily need to do jobs that can be done by robots. And, you know, we're just taking them higher and higher up um, Mm -hmm. on the so-called Maslow's triangle. But, but let me ask you this, you, one of the, one of the things you mentioned about what a UBI can do is changing the notion of work itself. And I think maybe, maybe that's why like UBI seems a bit radical to people because I think it's more than just doling out cash to people and it goes deeper than that and it challenges the concept of work itself. Does it, you know, does it challenge the 40-hour work week? Do we get to choose what kind of work we want to do? And there will be some folks who want to just like, you know, sit back on the couch and and chill all day. And, you know, will that cause resentment? So how does it can you go deeper into how it challenges the notion of work? Yeah, so I think um, there's a great public speaker, philosopher, and advocate on UBI. His name's Charles Eisenstein, who talks a lot about how the the basis of our current capitalist system is that it forces people into labor. 
So, so he says one of the threats of UBI is that it would be really hard to get people to do this kind of uh, degrading and dangerous work. And so I think sometimes when people say like, if you give everyone a UBI, wouldn't everyone just stop working? I think like the real question is, is like who will clean the toilets? Because maybe no one would want to clean toilets or you'd have to basically come up with an entirely different scheme. Maybe you would have to share like those kinds of jobs. Maybe someone would only want to do it one day a week or something like that. But basically, it would completely radically change this whole kind of underclass type of societal structure that we have right now, where people can be perpetually locked into these kinds of degrading jobs, right? I think there's like a lot of concern too. Scott Sandens talks a lot about this, a lot of concern about the loss of some of these very unfulfilling jobs. I see a lot of people, for instance, talk about like, uh, self-checkouts at grocery stores. And they'll be like, oh, that's awful. We're losing a job for a cashier and they're replaced with all these machines. But it's like, what is that job really? You know what I mean? Of just standing in place all day, doing damage to your body and monotonously scanning items over and over again. Like there used to be, I think at the, when we, we were first entering the industrial revolution, there's a lot of critique and there's a, a movie by Charlie Chaplin about it, um, which was criticizing how people are being turned into machines. Right. And now we've kind of moved to the second stage where we're worried about losing the jobs where people were acting like machines. <laughs> you know what I mean? Instead of actually treating people like people. So I, I feel like there's when we now have machines to do, do those jobs. Yeah, and they totally could. And we, uh, the thing is, is we need part of why we need UBI is because we need to restructure society into a place where we're actually happy when we get rid of crappy jobs. Right. Like imagine if we all had to do a shift one day a week doing a crappy job and someone was like hey we just we we invented a machine that does it for you you'd be like yes <laughs> you'd be like yeah now i get to go do better things right instead it's like look at the sad state of society where people have to worry about losing crappy low paying unmeaningful jobs you know what i mean i feel like that's like this step further um uh like displace like further down in in your thinking to even have to be worried about losing a crappy job let alone even having a crappy job in the first place yeah and i think about like how I've, i'm slowly realizing this i think this pandemic has made me realize this more strongly how intimately our personal lives are determined by our economic lives and like there's so many i think about this might be a super superficial example but I'll throw it out there like you know single mom has kids at home she does two jobs to you know keep her family afloat and her her child or children at home don't necessarily get to spend like quality time with her with their mother um maybe because she, because the mom is so busy doesn't get she you know the exchange of love and affection is not happening that is so important for um for the upbringing of, of, of a child. And, and then this human, like they grow up and they go out and interact with the world, but we don't know how that deprivation at home, let's say of love and affection has affected them and how they're going to go out and interact with the world, you know? And, you know, this might be like an overstretching, exaggerated example, but, but I'm trying to say that our, the way we interact with the world economically, I think has such an intimate play and role and it affects who we sort of end up becoming and if and we and like 
I think one of the critiques is like, will people stop working? Well, if you want to make more money beyond what you're getting, then there's always the opportunity to do that, you know? And it's not that everybody's going to like, you know, become couch potatoes. Yeah, I think, I think pe- people have to wonder, like, why do people even work in the first place? Such a this is something <laughs> I think um, Rucker Bregman kind of asked this question in one of his TED Talks where he, he asks the audience, if you received a universal basic income, would you stop working? Or like, raise your hand if you wouldn't stop working if you received your UBI. And basically, everyone raises their hand, right? And so basically, he, he says, people tend to always think that I wouldn't stop working if I got a UBI. It's those other people, you know, the takers who would stop working. But if you go and ask every single person, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who would say, I would just sit on the couch all day if I had a UBI. So I think it's this kind of like fictional model of what a poor slacker looks like that we've kind of built up in our minds through a lot of kind of propaganda from the media and the government about what poor people are like, right? And the, and the premise of his TED Talk is really around the idea that poverty is not a lack of character, it's a lack of cash. And I think there's a, there's a reality that a lot of what separates the rich and the poor isn't, you know, great genes or uh, even great schooling sometimes. A lot of it's just money. Like there's a, there's a scene in the movie Parasite that I always re- remembers. Um, the daughter's like, oh, that the the lady, the rich lady, she's so nice. And then the the mother of the poor family's like, yeah, I'd be nice too if I had money. <laughs> and and it's true, right? Like, <laughs> so I th- I often think like, what would someone like George Bush be doing right now if he wasn't the president's son? If he wasn't born to to be the president's son, you know what I mean? That guy would be working at a gas station. <laughs> so <laughs> so, so true. In a lot of cases. <laughs> You're so right. Like the starting lines of people are so different. Yeah. And, and you can honestly elevate poor people so far by just giving them money. You completely change their outlook almost overnight and the way they start making plans for their future and the way they behave. I think the way, the reason why we have this kind of view of, of poverty of people who, who are low income as having certain characteristics of being more slacker and that kind of stuff is because the way our system is designed or social support network is to basically it's it's a ceiling it keeps people within poverty right like if you start to make more money you lose your benefits for instance right and a lot of the times these people are spending a lot of their time just navigating bureaucracy to keep their benefits and so if you you kind of keep people below a certain ceiling and then say oh well why aren't people acting better the the truth is if you just gave them money they would start to completely change who they are not that i'm saying poor people are acting indecent or anything like that but this perception of, of how they are the way kind of michael bloomberg w- would look at um uh, people in a situation of poverty and say they need to learn how to behave in these kinds of these kinds of things yeah and i think there have been countless studies where experiments have been done where you know a family let's say living in a living below the poverty line has been given cash and they've actually seen entrepreneurship blossom you know because they're like oh wow like I have this cash now let me you know let me see how I can make the most of it yeah you see that with studies in the in the developing world when they provide cash injections into communities entrepreneurship skyrockets people just start opening businesses it completely transforms the community yeah and I think I want to just press you on something that you said about 
And I'm going to ask you to correct me here, intrinsic and intrinsic value of work. Can you flesh out that idea a bit? Yeah, so the, the, it's really about whether or not people are better motivated intrinsically or extrinsically. So if you say, tell somebody, if, if you do this, I'll give you this, is that going to have a higher amount of motivation to them? Or is it going to be more something, can you motivate them better if they have some kind of internal drive for what they want to accomplish, right? So for instance, us even being on this podcast today, like what's motivating us to be here, right? If you were, if you said, Nassim, I'll pay you $20 to do this versus Nassim, do you want to be on my podcast? I would actually prefer to, to do it without being paid, right? My motivation Nassim is, just is to make not money. getting any money to come on this podcast. <laughs> that's not that's what I'm trying to make. But, <laughs> but I love this example. <laughs> I think in some aspects, you can almost cheapen what people are trying to achieve when you just associate a price tag to it versus if it's out of a person's passion or drive to achieve something. So a lot of people in the UBI community don't do it for the money. They're not trying to push for UBI because they want to make money out of it. They try and, and make enough so that they can continue and advocate for it. But mostly this is out of pure drive and passion. And And if you look at the amount of energy and and devotion they have that they bring towards their work is, is so incredibly high. So I feel like like it, it makes so much more sense to build a society around allowing people to have that kind of energy and drive in their work um, rather than forcing people into, into certain roles out of, out of desperation, just allow them to do the thing that they would bring the most energy and passion to. And uh, Scott Sims talks about this with this kind of like monster sink argument which is that Monsters, Inc. was a society that was originally built on extracting energy from children's fear. And then they accidentally realize you extract more energy if you get them to laugh or, or be joyous. Um, it extracts 10 times more energy. And so was, the question is, is how did you realize that an entire society was structured around extracting value from people um, based out of fear rather than it could completely be change to extract value from people who are joyous and enjoying what they're doing and they'd actually extract way more value they would be way more productive and passionate about it and people are so valuable and i can't help like everybody has a gift i think you know whether you have been given the chance to realize it whether you know it on your own but i think everybody is valuable and i think we lose so much innovation and out-of-the-box thinking and revolutionary thinking when people are stuck in doing jobs that they need just to just to stay alive like I'm pretty sure that in India like there's so many people who are just like literally shackled by by the situation that they're born into just like probably like you know cleaning bathrooms or sweeping streets but these are probably such smart valuable people and if they were just given this opportunity to realize themselves i'd like i i think our society would actually progress so much quicker than it than it is right now because if we see the leaps and bounds progress that we made you know a couple of hundred years ago to reach where we are and you know now that we look back uh look back a decade i think our progress has been more incremental compared to how far we have come to get here. But let me ask you, let me ask you this. Do you think that a universal, unconditional basic income has the possibility of transforming our overproductive, overconsumption attitude 
and our extractive economy? Does it have the potential to sort of turn that on its head and turn capitalism on its head? Yeah. So um, one place to start from would be the idea that if people had more money to spend, they would buy less low quality goods. So if if they can buy more durable goods, then they don't have to go back and, and buy things after they die out. I remember when I was a kid, my dad would buy these packs of batteries from the dollar store and he'd be like, look, I got like 50 batteries for a dollar. <laughs> they like last like two seconds. And you're just like throwing out, instead of using two batteries, you get to use 50 and throw each one out, right? So I think we've all had that experience with them. <laughs> so I think if you can't, yeah, when you can't afford things, you just end up consuming a lot of low quality goods and you just kind of turn through things quite quickly. But then I also think there's like a, a more like a deeper argument about how people interact with society. So I think we're kind of all on the treadmill. And because of that, we don't really have a, a, a moment to step back and kind of look at the broader picture and think about what makes us really happy. So I think part of the reason why we're uh, consuming so much is because it's kind of the only way you can trade in your time, especially if you don't enjoy your job, right? It's like, okay, I already spent all this time on something I don't enjoy. Now can I spend it on something I do enjoy? Versus if you just had ownership of your time, you might realize, okay, the things I actually really enjoy are spending time with my family, right? You just end up spending more time with your family and, you know, you might realize, oh, I, I really enjoy creative pursuits. And so you might just spend a lot of time, you know, trying to learn an instrument or writing creatively or whatever. And so I think it's a lot of it just comes down to the fact that people are just looking for a ways to trade in what they've already spent, <laughs> which is their time. Yeah. And I think um, I was thinking about this yesterday. I was reading through some of the resources that you had sent me and it struck me that I think this might be a fantastic solution to mitigating the climate crisis. Um, because like you said, there will be some people who maybe have innovative ideas, maybe that will, you know, give us, give us access to better renewable energy. There might be people who might, you know, walk away from urban cities, want to go back, want to go live in a faraway rural land and just farm, you know, maybe we'll take away burden, the burden that we are seeing in ur urban cities right now. Maybe there will be some people who, like you said, want to play an instrument, want to spend time with their families. Like I think, Right now, there's just so much pressure to keep interacting and producing and consuming because you have to do that in order to stay alive. Like that's the that's the world we live in. That's the normal right now. Um, but I think if people had that, you know, security from the get go, then the way we interact with the world, like you said, would be so, so different. And it might it might even be better for the environment, sustainable long term. Mm, and, and just on the idea of innovation there, I feel like people, I feel like people maybe have a misunderstanding, particularly in the government about how innovation comes about. And I, I think a lot of really innovative and amazing ideas or, you know, pieces of art have come about from people who are willing to work really hard on something for a really long time, knowing that there could potentially be no payoff at any point. So I think if you actually want to foster innovation, you have to be willing to give people that opportunity. It's like, okay, you're really, really interested in these intricate math problems. We're going to let you do that for a really long time. And maybe they'll never really be that big a benefit or a payoff down the line or, or, or within their career. 
but essentially you have to let people take those risks, right? And and you basically have to give people the the support network to be able to to take those risks so that you know you you're not just right now the way it works is if you're an entrepreneur you have to expect some kind of return on your investment, right? Otherwise it's like I spent all this time you know starting failed businesses while my friends were buying houses, right? Now I'm like way further down on the economic ladder or my my retirement situation. So so a lot of them end up having to think, okay, I want to make sure that I can start businesses that have a higher degree of certainty on return. But the higher degree of uncertainty on return of the venture that you're starting, I think the higher um, possibility, like the greater the, the the outcome can potentially be if you want to to come up with like world changing ideas. All the obvious things, people have already done them, right? The 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 real like nuggets of gold are are in the past that are unobvious that people wouldn't think to go down. Yeah, and I think um to just to add to your point, I think it takes a lot of it takes an idle mind that is not being distracted to also, you know, reach into your inner creativity and 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 innovate. I think you need you need time to be idle and get bored. But if you're constantly mm-hmm. involved, if you have a project you want to pursue, but you need to also keep yourself afloat, then it's like I'm working, I'm working in the in in the day, and then I'm gonna you know spend time on my project at night. But you know, are you able to take that moment, take a step back, and get bored and let your mind wander in order to be creative and innovate? Nasim, let me ask you this though, like realistically. Do you see a possibility for UBI being rolled out in Canada, let's say, which many people will say is a more morally uh, progressive country than America? I think so. I I think we'll we'll definitely get there. I think eventually in our lifetime, in our lifetime, I think so. If you look at the pace in which automation is increasing, that inequality is worsening that we have to prepare for crises like this one or future crises from climate change. Um, I think that's increasingly laying the foundation, the case for a UBI, that people are living in an increasingly unpredictable world. And I think that's a huge problem. I think that's how we got Trump. I think that's how we got um, Doug Ford. I think people tend to vote on the extremes when they feel uncertain about their future. And I think the... I think governments are going to realize you have to give some people some degree of certainty and ability to plan for the future. And as that's kind of being taken away from future generations, I think we're definitely moving in that in that path. I think it's going to become more and more of a um, of a necessity. And I think this crisis has really highlighted it as well. I think a lot of people on the CERB are it's going to be their first time probably facing this level of um, uh, kind of interrupt in their lives of, of precariousness. Um, and I think they probably get a taste and appreciation for what a UBI brings to the table. So I think it's definitely possible. And I think the momentum is building really fast. I mean, you've already saw a presidential candidate run on it and have quite a bit of success. You saw Alvin Tejo run on it for the Ontario Liberal Party um, leaders running in that nomination race. Um, so, and the Green Party ran on a similar plan in the last federal election. So I think it's start definitely has is starting to build towards a critical mass. For a while, it was kind of moving slowly, and it was just people who were really interested in it. But now it's definitely moving into the mainstream. So I think we'll definitely see it in our lifetime. Um, how soon? I I'm not sure, but uh, we're definitely picking up steam. 
On that very hopeful note, Nasan, thank you so much for joining me again today on The Nth Dimension. Yeah, thank you. It's a lot of fun. The idea of doling out cash under a UBI program is scary and radical to some because it challenges so many widely accepted notions of our society. The idea of having to work to earn your bread. What if some people don't want to work? What about work when there's rapid technological progress taking place? Should we have to work? I guess it challenges the idea of what people will do with their time when they have their basic needs covered. And I think that notion is scary to governments because when people have time and freedom, most importantly, they can be easily challenged. UBI or not, it became clear long before this pandemic that our current neoliberal structures need heavy-duty reformation. The climate crisis demands that we turn this extractive way of living on its head for our own long-term stability. And this pandemic has offered us an opportunity to look at solutions. The universe has, as if, given us a big fat go to your room and think about what you've done. So why don't we take our downtime to do just that? Please follow The Nth Dimension on Twitter at underscore The Nth Dimension and stay safe and keep washing those hands.